Good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Colton Beck. Uh, my wife, Alex, and I, uh, we've been a part of uh, Windsor Community Church now for uh, over seven years, um, and we've been a part of the Crossway family uh, for a little bit longer than that. Uh, we lead a community group here alongside Travis and Brittany Smith, uh, but where I stand now uh, behind a pulpit is something new for all of us here. Um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a weighty thing to, um, it's a weighty task to uh, take part in the unifying and the strengthening of God's people. Um, so, would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege of gathering as one body today. Uh, we thank you for your kindness towards us, uh, displayed at the cross of Christ. I pray that through the wisdom of your holy word, uh, your church would be nourished and encouraged uh, by the preaching of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A few years after the church in Corinth was established, trouble took place within the church community. This kind of trouble uh, was not a natural disaster or a food shortage. This had to do with wisdom and sin. The Corinthians are in a place and time where a lot is going on. There's a lively economy. There's new people from different backgrounds coming through town. New ideas were emerging among an increasingly more populated and sophisticated society. Those, those of us here uh, who watched Windsor grow over the last few decades or witnessed the progression of technology um, explode between the 20th and 21st century can relate to what's going on in Corinth. New people, new things, new opportunities, new ideas. There didn't seem to be a shortage of this in Corinth, and there certainly is no sh shortage here today. With all that's available at our fingertips, there's much wisdom in the world to download and help shape our thoughts, skills, and beliefs. The search for wisdom is not an inherent problem, but it doesn't take long for fallen humanity to present a problem. In the search for wisdom, we can often experience a gravitational pull to rely on a form of wisdom that is empty of actual power. This is a problem in Corinth that Paul has caught wind of. The aroma of Jesus Christ and him crucified seems to be losing its scent within the church. So Paul inserts himself into a mess of sorts. This mess matters for us today. The church in Corinth has drifted, and the lives of the Corinthians don't seem to reflect that of the upside-down gospel message that led to their salvation. In addressing a wayward church body, Paul reminds the Corinthians of his first visit to Corinth to share the upside-down message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read of Paul's first visit to Corinth, my hope is that our faith would rest in a wisdom and a power that is greater than man. The message this morning is divided into two basic points as follows. A knowledge of Christ and him crucified in verses one and two. 
and a dependence on Christ and him crucified. Verses three through five. Before we dive into this morning's message, or the passage rather, we'll briefly review Paul's letter preceding chapter two. As you may remember from last week, there's division among the Christians in Corinth over who they most identify with. Many decided to align with Paul, Cephas, Apollos, or Christ. Ultimately, disunity among the church grew. An unhealthy elevation of man had clouded the vision of many within the church as the danger of personality cults persist in Paul's absence. So Paul is on a mission to reorient the the Corinthians to the cross where unity ought to be found. Unity in the consequence of sin, the cost of sin, and the forgiveness of sin. The problem is that the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. Seen in verse 18 of chapter 1. To the perishing, the idea that the way, the truth, and the life is to be found in a man that died is utter foolishness. It's a bad story that doesn't tickle the ears of a well-educated Greek society or a Jewish people looking for a physical dominance out of their Messiah. The truth is that not even the brightest or the most creative among the Corinthians could craft together this kind of upside-down narrative. Paul writes that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are. Paul reminds the the Christians in Corinth of God's upside-down way of growing his kingdom and of God's kindness in granting his love to whomever he pleases. In chapter 2, Paul now reminds the Corinthians of his initial visit to their city and highlights his priority in knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is our first point, a knowledge of Christ and him crucified. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now this is the same Paul that lived as a devout Pharisee, born of Pharisees. He's the kind of guy you would want on your Bible trivia team. And he probably could have mixed in just fine with the trained philosophers of the time. The separation from lofty speech and wisdom is deliberate. And it's not because he's unable to speak with a superiority or intelligence, or rhetoric. Paul is actively at work in distancing himself from those that would employ a type of vanity and perception that is contrary to the authoritative testimony of God. We see this separation established in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 1. I'll read. Where is the one that is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. This is quite a mouthful. But Paul is ironically attributing a type of worldly wisdom 
to those that are outside of Christ, namely the Greeks. Paul credits this wisdom to a well-educated, trained, and philosophical society. These people are not dumb. They're actually pretty smart. But their sin stands in the way of true wisdom. At the foot of the cross, they don't see or know God. They see foolishness. Paul argues that apart from the crucified Christ, the product of a well-thought-out and constructed message of hope and enlightenment is ultimately a futile one. The wisdom of man is futile without Christ. In college, I pursued a civil engineering degree, and one of my best childhood friends took a different path. He uh, pursued a business degree, and he happened to join a fraternity as well. And this has nothing to do with fraternities. But uh, after a few years of Greek life, I imagine he gained a, a reasonable comfort level with the Greek alphabet. But if my friend tried to assist me in my engineering coursework because he recognized Greek letters in my textbooks, his efforts would be futile. He sees words in the symbology when they're actually numerical numbers. In the pursuit of things like fulfillment and wisdom, this is the divide between the wisdom of the world and the message of Christ and him crucified. The wisdom of the world sees letters in a long math equation and cannot make sense of it. It's folly to them. After explaining what his speech didn't look like, Paul says that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why does Paul seem to be so resolved in reminding the church of the death of Jesus? Why not the life of Jesus or the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus. He's chosen such a narrow and unimpressive window of history to choose from, especially on this side of history, as the Corinthians are well aware of Jesus' death or Jesus' victory over death. Paul's not making the point that he lacks knowledge beyond Jesus' crucifixion. He's saying that his mind and his speech are marked by this redemptive event. Jesus laid down his life for Paul, And not only did Jesus die as a sacrifice for Paul, but he did so in a distinct manner. The crucifixion process was designed to slowly punish convicted criminals to death. It was not known to be a hero's way of going out. And it was recognized as a humiliating departure from life on earth. And that's also what Paul is getting at. The victorious end of Jesus' earthly ministry was seemingly unimpressive and humiliating. It was upside down. Jesus lived a sinless, spotless life of obedience so that the many would be made righteous and then was slowly murdered as a penalty for guilty sinners. Neither the Greeks or the Jews saw this coming. This upside down method of path or this upside down method of a path towards peace with God was certainly not a common formula for winning over a Greek society or a Jewish society. But Paul decided to know nothing but this, and it took up all the real estate in his head. And his throat, which was once an open grave, is now a garden of life. Paul identifies with the cross, and as a result, embraces the Lord's method of victory, 
one that is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. For those of us here, united by the cross of Christ, the unimpressive and humiliating crucifixion of Jesus ought to be a comforting reality for us. In knowing and identifying with him, we have the privilege of sharing in Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent uh, defeat of death. Our embarrassing ways and humiliating sins become his. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul also says in Galatians 2, that, there is no, that it is no longer he who lives, but it is Christ who lives in him. In Christ, Paul simply cannot be estranged, estranged from the blessings found in the death of Christ. Christ's death is Paul's death, and Christ's resurrection is the new life Paul is given. He is in Christ. But we see here in 1 Corinthians that this life is not one of self-promotion, and there's nothing lofty about it. It's a life that responds in faith to knowing Christ and him crucified. In verse 3, we see Paul take another step in distancing himself from those that subscribe to a merely human wisdom and power. We will now see Paul display our second point, a dependence on Christ and him crucified. Here's verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul points out the manner and content of his speech in the first few verses. And here we see the internal and external tension exhibited by Paul when he visited the the Corinthians. The first being weakness. Weakness is a uniquely significant element to the Christian worldview. First, biblical weakness is a is rooted in the design of humanity. We have always been a people that tire, hunger, and depend on our creator for basic elements of life. After the fall in Genesis 3, weakness became a bit more complex, including things like pain, suffering, and death. But in God's kindness, our inabilities, our insufficiencies, and our frailties are given good purposes in the advancement of God's kingdom. With all that said, weakness is not a lofty attribute. Weakness is often an attribute or condition that we wouldn't necessarily wish upon ourselves or our neighbor. Paul gives us an example of weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In light of unique visions and revelations that Paul had experienced, the Lord gave Paul a thorn to humble him and keep him from conceit. This thorn was painful, and Paul wanted no part of it. Yet we see the Lord say this in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds in verse 9 and 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul 
identifies, Paul identifies with his frailty and hardship, but by no means is this something he musters up on his own like some weird form of neglect or self-punishment. Weakness that we see in the scriptures is not something that is manufactured. In this case, we see that Paul was given a thorn. Paul didn't have a say in the matter, and, and he even wished to be freed from the, from the difficulty that followed his thorn. So too, this is often the case with our weaknesses. We don't choose our weaknesses, and there's often a sense of agony associated with them that we, we, that we wish to be delivered from. I tend to think that Paul is referring to a physical ailment here in 2 Corinthians, but he very well may be referring to a different type of weakness in our 1 Corinthians passage. Something to note is that Paul may intentionally be avoiding specificity to his weaknesses in his writings to the Corinthians. It wouldn't have taken long for the Corinthians to make a hierarchy of weaknesses to see which weaknesses were more weak or less weak than others. In both cases with Paul, there is a strength outside of Paul that meets him where he lacks in his efforts to advance the gospel message and the purposes of God. This is what God is up to in Paul's life and ministry, and it's not the only time we see the power of God work through the weakness of man. Take the account of Moses in Exodus 3, a man that found himself uncertain and inadequate to execute the plan set before him to lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses himself is even concerned about his lack of eloquence and proficiency in speech. The power and glory of God was made evident in Moses' lacking. Or take the accounts of Gideon, of Gideon in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Chase brought this up last week. In God's kindness, he delivers Israel by means of a seemingly way underpowered army led by Gideon, who understandably was shaking in his boots at the thought of a calling, of his calling, to lead an army of 300 into battle against 132,000 Midianites. And at the apex of the biblical narrative, weakness is perfectly portrayed at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was born to die. Paul refers to this as the weakness of God, which is stronger than that of men. My hope is that the nature of weakness is an encouraging message for us, for those of us who are more on the timid side or find ourselves spiritually inadequate to advance the gospel message. This also extends to those of us who find ourselves utterly exhausted throughout the week or the perfectionists that feel the need to be prepared for every circumstance and tough question. We have a, we have a finite nature by design. We were created with limitations. And by the grace of God, this is not something to be afraid of, but it could be something that leads us into rejoicing in the Lord. In Philippians 4, Paul exhorts the church to rejoice in the Lord always. It should build our confidence that we don't need to have all our ducks in a row or have a polished appearance to be a Christian that proclaims Christ in our speech or in our weekly rhythms. God uses our weaknesses, and this is a good thing. Like Paul, we can trust in the spirit 
that the Spirit is at work in advancing his kingdom, not ours, in all circumstances, either as a nervous friend of an unbeliever, a sleep-deprived mother of a couple kids and a newborn, or an an overextended employee, or someone in suffering. My wife has a type of thorn. It's something that she wouldn't wish upon anyone. She and I uh, would also rejoice in the deliverance from this thorn. This thorn is most noticeable at church gatherings such as this, community group, family gatherings, and when you visit our home. In light of God's sovereignty and good purposes, it can be hard to make sense of the weaknesses that seem to come with barriers, but we can trust that this thorn, and we do trust that this thorn is not a restraint on how the Lord will use our gospel witness. This is something we can lean into, rejoicing in the Lord. Just to be clear, uh, the embracing of weakness is exclusive to the one who is in Christ. The message, as explained last week, is folly to those who have yet to acknowledge Christ as Lord. To rejoice in weakness, frailty, and suffering outside of Christ is some type of deranged madness. In Christ, we can embrace weakness and suffering within a larger story, and God has a knack for making himself known and powerful through these circumstances. We've seen the nature of weakness, and now we'll take a moment to address a ditch that we may be at risk of falling into. It's important to recognize that throughout the biblical narrative, the way of weakness is not a form of resignment or fatalism. Nothing about biblical weakness refers to a lack of work or effort. Paul makes himself clear in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul reminds the Corinthians of the grace of God in in changing and shaping the lives that respond to the gospel message. Paul uh, was the least likely type of man to turn from his sin and follow Christ. But we see in verse 10, Paul's testimony of God's grace in in his new life that is in Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul worked hard, and yet he wasn't fooled into thinking his efforts were devoid of the grace of God. It is the grace of God that Paul credits to his labors in his ministry. And so we too ought to be a people that work hard in the light of the grace of God. In our weaknesses and dependence on grace, Christians should be going to, going to bed tired. Now, just before we reach verses 4 and 5, after Paul points out his weakness, he also notes that he came to Corinth in fear and trembling. There is the potential that he was nervous about his original visit to Corinth, but I believe Paul is referring to a fear and trembling that he speaks of in Philippians 2. Here's verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul recognizes that salvation for the guilty was not cheap. He didn't arrive in Corinth with jokes or lofty speech. He arrived with evidence of God's saving work. He's confirming his calling and election, as the Apostle Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 1. Paul is not scared of God like a child would be afraid of a verbally or physically abusive father. This is a twisted and broken image that sadly distorts the image of God. Our Father is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Paul is reacting to the God's work of love and salvation with reverence, and he trembles at the thoughts of this kind of power. Moving on to verses four and five, Paul doubles down yet again on the significance of his knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ and him crucified, distancing himself from those that subscribe to a merely human wisdom and power. In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the middle of a long run-on sentence, Paul is beginning to close the loop on what he had to say in verse 1, which is nearly identical to verse 4. Paul is not placing an indictment on well-polished speech or the ability to put together a logical argument. He's not using the term wisdom as an all-encompassing term. This is a reference to the wisdom of man. This is a wisdom limited by vanity and man-made enlightenment. Paul is not concerned about a message that comes with a five-star review. He's concerned about a message that draws people to repentance. Through the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, our God is one that draws people to himself. In John 6, Jesus himself says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So, in Paul's original message to the Corinthians, he brought about the testimony of God in its purity. He didn't reshape the gospel message to make it more palatable for his Corinthian audience. In weakness, Paul proclaimed the sacrificial death of Jesus plainly, a message that many would find offensive, repulsive, and foolish. But then something powerful happened. The hearts of a proud, rebellious, autonomous, and self-centered bunch were softened. This wasn't Paul. This was the work and power of the Holy Spirit. The product of the Spirit's work in a once hard-hearted people is a beautiful thing. We see a glimpse of this in Paul's gracious words to the saints in Corinth uh, following his greeting in verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul writes this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God used a guy like Paul to proclaim a message that would result in this, a guiltless people called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. A church was planted. A bunch of people repented of their sin and rejoiced in something that was once a stumbling block or thought of as foolish. This is a beautiful thing. And this is not a unique event in Paul's ministry. Even when Paul is in prison, the the effectiveness of his ministry seems to increase. In Paul's weakness, uh, this too is a demonstration of the spirit and of power. This is an Old and New Testament reality. We too can rest in the power of God. In a neighborhood, a workplace, a school, or a society that seeks a wisdom apart from the person and work of Jesus, the Lord uses the faith and work of a weak people to bring about his name and his power. To the friends here that question the value of Christ and him crucified, and perhaps uh, see foolishness at the cross, the difference between you and the redeemed saints at Windsor Community Church is not a, is not a type of um, it's not a type of weakness or a status level. It's unrepentant sin. This is a type of rebellion against God that's independent of what the culture thinks of you, of or of your thoughts and actions. Sin is not a subjective thing. Scripture says that there is a penalty to be paid for sin, and our just God does not deal with sin lightly. It's at the cross where full payment for sin and the deliverance from the power of sin can be found. Paul had faith in proclaiming this message because we have an empty tomb in Jerusalem. This is something to put your faith in, because the wisdom of this world will fail you. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the way, the truth, and the life. True wisdom and power are found in him. I pray that the triune God over all things would draw you specifically to himself. WCC, how might we rest our faith in the power of God? Here are a few ways. Be comforted in your weaknesses. The advancement of the message of Christ and him crucified is not bound by our limitations, ailments, or circumstances. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then go to bed tired, rejoicing in the Lord. Proclaim the word of God in its purity. Resist any temptation to water it down or to add color that stains the message of Christ. The true message of redemption, anchored in Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the message that will pierce hearts of stone and nourish those that cherish the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you um, as a people that seek wisdom. And we thank you for the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. We come to you in faith and pray that your power would be, would be made present in our weakness. Help us to be a people that work out our salvation with fear and trembling, proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified in our speech and our weekly rhythms. May we be a people that rejoice in the Lord always. Amen.